This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNXRadio.com studios in L.A. Today, the very latest, as always, on the global coronavirus pandemic. Maybe schools and kids aren't the germ spreaders that we had originally thought. Biggest reason schools across much of the country closed is the worry the virus would quickly infect a lot of kids, teachers, staff, then make it to the parents. But it looks like that hasn't really been the case, at least early on. We'll look into why. We've been doing lots of cleaning since the start of this on everything. But maybe that's been a waste of time. We'll hear from a doctor about if we're going overboard. Farm workers in California's Central Valley having a tough time during the pandemic. Today, our special series looks into how school closures are impacting their lives. A major airline here in the U.S. has found a way to make some passengers feel better about taking to the skies. And if you're feeling these days like you can't get everything done, there's just too much on the list, you feel maybe you should be doing more. Either way, you're not alone. We'll explain how you can handle these kind of issues. And for months, we've covered just about every topic on this podcast. Tomorrow, a very special Coronavirus Daily podcast. The entire one will talk with family members who have lost loved ones to the virus. We'll be joined by a grief counselor to help us sort it all out. So that's on Friday's edition. But to the schools, Emily Oster, health economist at the Watson Institute at Brown University, creator of the National COVID-19 School Response Data Dashboard. Uh, I talked to her along with Chris Seedens about why schools haven't been the source of major outbreaks so far. Um, that I was surprised, although I think that we knew that kids were not as uh, at as high risk as uh, as some others. And so I think that there was some hope for optimism. And based on European data, maybe we were a little optimistic. But I think that um, that I think I, I have been positively surprised about what we've seen in the U.S. So what so kind far. of rates what kind of rates are we seeing? Is this is mostly K through 12? Because we know what's happening on some college campuses, which is it, and even in, in cities at large, it's it's the 20 somethings that are that are fueling it, the major part of the caseload right now. Absolutely. And so, you know, our, our data, which is, you know, still coming in, still in very early days, um, you know, we have, you know, 100,000 kids or so, and we're seeing rates that are, you know, a, a bit under a tenth of 1%. So that would be, you know, less than kind of around maybe one in a thousand uh, kids. Um, it's slightly higher in staff, but, you know, definitely small numbers um, and not these kind of large outbreaks that you're seeing in colleges uh, at all. You know, kids aren't at the highest risk of getting sick. We've been told that many times by the officials, but they they can be spreaders. They can be asymptomatic. They can spread it to mommy and daddy, grandpa and grandma, the the person down the hall. To me, that's always been the the biggest risk. I I take it because they're not getting it. This is not such a problem right now. So I think that that, I think the jury is still out on on that risk um, because we haven't. But I think for that, we'd really want to look out in the community. And I think we also haven't seen that community rates are responding to schools. In some sense, when we talk about schools, I have always been saying, I've said this whole time, that we're really worried about the staff. And one of the things that's happening is in a lot of places, the staff are back, but the students are not. And that actually seems to be almost the reverse of what you would what you would want. And we're certainly seeing higher rates in staff, but we're also seeing higher rates in staff in places where the students are not there. And so that suggests that it's kind of staff-staff interaction that we want to be a little more careful about, not so much students interaction. The, the, is it the schools that are giving you in the dashboard the data or is it coming from, from counties? So where is it coming from? And is it pretty uniform in terms of the, the policies they have in place to, to try and slow spread? So we're getting data directly from the schools. And the reason that we're, we're doing that and we're starting with the schools is because then we can know how, how they're opening, what kind of mitigation they're undertaking, and how many students they have in, which is, I think, a, a sort of key metric for us is it's not 
really sufficient to just count cases. You really want to think about, you know, what's the denominator? How many kids do you have in school? And at the same time, we ask them, are you opening hybrid? Are you opening remote? Do you have masking? Do you have distancing? And so we can potentially, especially as our sample grows and more districts enroll and more places open in person, we can ask questions, what are the kinds of things that schools are doing that make it safer or less safe to be in person? You mentioned the potential for staff-to-staff infection, that that's a concern. What else is high on your radar when it comes to biggest concerns as we head forward? Um, you know, I think that uh, that schools opening without uh, without masking um, seems like uh, something that I'm, you know, I'm concerned about. I think that there's a there's a risk that people take these low rates and they say, oh, well, we can just open schools by with, with nothing, you know, with no precautions. And I think that's exactly the wrong conclusion. I think really what what one might say is if you open schools, you could achieve low low rates potentially, but you really need to to be undertaking particularly things like masking, which, you know, which really are possible to do even without a lot of additional resources. I'm wondering if we're also just so hyper aware than the schools that are back, if some kid has a sniffles or a little cough and, and maybe it's allergies or maybe it's a cold, but they're probably going to the nurse's office or they're going home for a while until something's figured out because anything could be a suspected case at this point. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a, you know, in some sense, that's a reason to continue to push to have more testing. I know you guys in LA have a better testing infrastructure than some places even if they're, you're not in school. But then, you know, the having better testing will mean that when students get a little sick, then they can immediately learn if it's COVID and they can either appropriately isolate their contacts or they can get them back in, in school and realize they just have a they just have a cold. Emily Oster, health economist, Watson Institute at Brown University, creator of the National COVID-19 School Response Data Dashboard. We have been wiping down just about everything since the start of this, but has it been a bit of a waste when it comes to protecting yourself from the virus? Because we know it's droplets and there's an airborne possibility. Let's talk about this now with Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician at UC San Francisco. I talked to her about whether we should focus this much on cleaning or whether we should just realize that the world's dirty, so it's a good idea to wash your hands, but don't necessarily freak out. It's essentially gone. And we need to stop worrying about it because, you know, what was happening at the beginning is that we had could not understand why this was spreading so quickly. And now it's very clear. It's because there's a lot of asymptomatic transmission. Even when you feel fine, you can shed this at high rates of virus from your nose and mouth. That's it. That's what's going on. We do not get it from surfaces and fomites and our groceries, and we don't have to sterilize our food and we don't have to let our mail sit out for an hour or a day. All of that was just in the in the midst of trying to understand what was going on. And also because you can always culture virus um, if you do a study where you spray a lot of virus on a surface and then you culture it, but that doesn't mean that's how we get it. Um, and in fact, you know, those studies that cultured virus, you'd, you'd need like a thousand people um, sneezing on a piece of mail for you to be able to get it that way. So it really... I, we need to get away from the fomites and the surfaces and the concern about that. Hand hygiene has always been a part of infectious disease control. So when you get back, wash your hands, wash your hands before food, um, before you eat. But really, it, this kind of fear needs to go away. For people who still are worried, though, and they go, OK, I touch doorknobs, I touch money, I'm getting packages. There's still cups of, of good pens and used pens at the at the, the, the dine out places when I go and get my takeout. I said to somebody the other day, I said, well, unless you're taking the pen and putting it up your nose, you're probably <laughs> going to be OK. That's I, right. I guess it just makes sense to people, though. 
the, the world has stuff on it and I need to wash those hands. But then it just comes back to you get to work, wash the hands, you get home, wash your hands, don't touch your face if you have been out running errands. Yes. So that's right. I mean, actually, in this setting of wearing masks, people aren't actually sticking their hands in their mouths and nose in the same way that they used to when they're out. And so that already has decreased the idea that you have something and you're putting it in your mouth and nose. And then um, and then washing hands has always been a way to decrease infections because you people, you know, at the end of the day, they are putting their fingers in places that we don't, you know, when people aren't looking, they are doing that. I mean, come on. And so... Um, so this is good hand hygiene, good infectious disease control principles. But the idea that you could get it from surfaces or like touch a surface and then sort of get it, that's actually along the lines of, of a science fiction movie. That's like, um, you know, radioactive. And we, we just couldn't understand at the beginning what was happening. And now we know, you know, you, you spread it even when you feel well. It's actually why masking is so important. That is the predominant root of spread. And um, you don't get it from surfaces and it doesn't inhale through your skin. And it's, it's, it's people really need to, there's enough going on um, at the moment in the world. <laughs> right. Worry Been worried about, about scrubbing the groceries. Be, yeah, that needs to be taken off our worry list um, at this point. It is over. Okay. So we have the masks. We have physical distancing. We have staying away from crowds. Take me into a home, though, where somebody has COVID. They have the positive test and there's a family there and they think, okay, how do I keep myself safe in this house when somebody else is there? Because cleaning will come into play there, ventilation, and again, trying to separate yourself in that house as much as possible, I guess. Yes. I mean, what you just said, or you just actually said the five key principles. It, it's really masking, social distancing, staying away from large crowds, hand hygiene, and ventilation. And so that would apply in a home as well. And in a home, um, I, if someone has COVID, they should be masking, and so should the people that are interacting with that family member, because it's really that mask that gives you that inability to get it because it's really from the nose and mouth. And then in terms of, like, they go to the bathroom and then you have to massively disinfect the toilet. No, um, that is not how it spread. And I would, I would rather people, you know, save their money on Lysol and disinfectants and um, buy um, masks and hand sanitizer. We spent a lot of time early on in the pandemic probably doing way too much cleaning. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious disease physician, University of California, San Francisco Health. Now back to our series about farm workers and their families in California's Central Valley and the impacts of the pandemic on them. Disproportionate impact on the Latino community, people working essential jobs, coming home to large households. KCBS's Kathy Novak looks into how school closures are not only adding pressure on families, but also reducing their incomes. Back on the road with Armando Valdez, the community leader we met in part one of this series. See that house right here, the first one? The whole entire family was infected. And this Pulling into the next stop at Raisin City, one. there's already a line of people waiting to pick up the boxes of food he has come to hand out. Maria Solan says she needs the extra help now since her husband is the only one working because she has to look after the kids. The babysitter who usually watches my daughter told me she does not want to take the risk right now. With schools closed and people keeping their distance, other women here are in a similar position, now relying on a single paycheck, often for large households. Like at Laura Garcia's place, where eight kids are hanging out in the living room. Five of her own, plus a niece who lives with her, and two others they're babysitting. 
The ones in school are all sharing one internet hotspot. We have been having problems with the connection. It cuts out a lot. It's a problem for two of the girls. They are behind in their classes because of the bad connection. And since her husband is an essential worker coming and going during a pandemic, there's concern about them sharing more than Wi-Fi. It's kind of hard sometimes. 18-year-old Yesenia is starting senior year from home. She's also been working in the fields in her spare time so she can send money to her parents in Mexico. She says she's being safe. We work separated, and then we also we cover our face, everything, like normal. Still not quite normal for everyone. Nancy Estrada is worried about her husband going to his job at a local dairy. There have been problems with his co-workers getting sick. Some of them do not want to wear masks, and one of them got sick. But if her husband doesn't work, they'll lose their home. Their trailer is provided as part of his pay package. The boss owns all her neighbors' homes, too. And the guy across the way got COVID. He doesn't get it, because every eight days he goes to the cockfights. There's another family that gets together every week or so to have a big reunion with lots of tables and lots of men gathering. I'm a Mexican-American, and I, my culture, we love to get together and party, carne asada, and all that kind of stuff. Well, you can't do that. Jenny Rodriguez says it may be one of the reasons this region became a COVID hotspot. It's not just employment and lack of enforcement. It's also one self, us doing, not doing what we're supposed to do, which means wearing masks when you're out in public, washing your hands, etc. Tomorrow, we'll meet one Central Valley grower who's taken it upon himself to make that public service message larger than life. He created these images that are about 13 feet tall, and we put them alongside the highway here. For Coronavirus Daily, I'm KCBS's Kathy Novak in Fresno County. The airlines, they want you back. They need you back. They've dropped prices. Now United has a new plan looking to provide rapid coronavirus tests for some passengers. Joe Schwederman, professor of public services and director of the Chattuck Institute at DePaul University, talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. This is a big story today. Uh, United has a new uh, plan for passengers going to Hawaii on October 15th or later. You can actually do a COVID test at the airport, and it's going to be administered by Abbott Labs, you know, Chicago-based company here. Uh, only for passengers heading out of San Francisco to Hawaii. Uh, you know, but the good news is you uh, won't have to quarantine when you get to Hawaii if you've, you've had that test, and, and you can do it last moment. Do you see a time when this becomes mandatory, or do you expect it to continue to just be something that's an option for people? Well, there's a great deal of excitement around this, because it shows there are some new ways we can, uh, we can do testing and get people back in the skies without you know, the quarantine uh, burden, which is just tremendous. The test only takes 15 minutes, so it's a real quick thing. Uh, no signs it's going to be made mandatory, but there is a, a sense that this is a trial. If it works, we could see it particularly more long-haul flights, you know, even some transcontinental flights or uh, Chicago West Coast, uh, Europe. So there's a lot of optimism this could, uh, you know, break down a barrier. And as you mentioned, Hawaii, people on the other end are having to quarantine for two weeks. This might actually allow more travelers to come and spend time in Hawaii, travelers who couldn't afford to stay there for two weeks in quarantine. That's exactly right. And I think people see it as a major hassle factor of getting the test. You know, you can do a test uh, off-site before you leave if it's 72 hours before you arrive, within 72 hours before you arrive. So you can go to the doctor a couple days ahead. You know, but that takes a lot of forethought and you have to, you know, kind of do everything right, send the samples to the right place. 
here it's uh, it's pretty foolproof. So it's uh, it's going to definitely raise some optimism. Now, given the uh, the quarantine mandate in Hawaii, there's actually quite a few deals for Hawaii because there's just not a lot of travelers that are able to get there. So if you get one of these tests, now is a pretty decent time to go to Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii is really a distressed market from a revenue standpoint right now. So the deals are really, uh, really excellent there, and they've they've had a pretty uh, strict protocol. On October fifteenth, they're in a way loosening up a bit, you know, with this new test requirement. So I think you'll see uh, a lot of uh, a lot of bookings in the next few weeks. What about cruise lines? Do you see it expanding so that cruise lines can actually get moving again? You know, cruise lines are really uh, ground zero for this, and they've uh, affected even more than the airlines. And I think when you have uh, cruises that last a couple days, uh, clearly uh, the burden of doing a test before you get on the cruise ship is, is fairly minimal. So it's uh, it's evident that these tests aren't that expensive because it's not something that's uh, going to be a premium priced at the airport. It pretty much comes with your flight. So cruise companies, no doubt, will be trying this, maybe watching United real closely. Thanks so much. Always good information from Joe Schwederman. It has been tough getting through this. We know about anxiety and depression, but have you heard about productivity guilt? It's when you feel like you can't get a handle on work and everything else that you need to get done, or maybe you feel like there's something else you could be doing more. Dr. Kelly McClure, chair of the Undergraduate Psychology Division at LaSalle University, she talked to KYW's Charlotte Reese about how to handle this. If you think about the two words separately, guilt, first of all, is an emotion. Emotions give us information about ourselves and also motivate us to to action. And so guilt in particular, it's an uncomfortable emotion. So it, it kind of motivates us to do something, especially when we feel like we've done harm to someone or something. So in that way, guilt is like, it's a very social emotion. It helps us with our social relationships and helps us focus on ourself in relation to other people. So what it does is it motivates us really to repair relationships or to act in a socially responsible way. And then the other part, the productivity, is that at that most basic definition, productivity is the ratio between the outputs and the inputs of our work. So it's sort of a comparison between how much we're putting in to our work and then the product that's coming out of it. So when you put those things together, productivity, guilt, it's really feeling guilty, feeling like we've broken some kind of a social contract for how much kind of that ratio for not producing enough output relative to how hard we're working. Mm. Yeah, I like how you say, too, that it hasn't been studied that much because some of the articles I was reading, you know, date back a couple years and then some of them even say <laughs> pandemic productivity guilt. I mean, is there a difference between just regular productivity guilt and what people may be feeling now? Or do, do researchers even know that? It, it's too early to tell, right? Because we're not really studying the productivity guilt that's going on right now. But when you think about what's happening during this particular pandemic, it, well, during any pandemic, I guess, it's just that there's so much going on, right? And so it's almost become impossible for us to hold ourselves to those same productivity standards that we had before March. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Right now, it's taking a lot more effort to produce that same result than we would have before March. 
And the reasons for that can can really vary. So if you're working in person, there might be transportation barriers that might be a lot harder to get where you need to go. There's a lot of caregiving logistics that need to be taken care of just to get to work. And also products aren't always readily available. So it just takes a lot more effort to do the things that we normally were doing before. And so it feels like we've put in a lot, like that input part of it is a lot more, but the result isn't that we're having more, whatever it is where we produce. So, you know, we're not making, in my case, I'm not teaching more students or producing more research or we're not producing more podcasts, but it's still taking a lot more effort to get the things done that we used to do. And then if we're remote working, there's also, we've had to learn a lot of technologies, deal with unstable internet connections, multiple people in the house sharing space and Wi-Fi signals. And then again, those caregiving logistics as well, just making it a whole lot harder to get the things done that we used to get done. And so it kind of produces this feeling of guilt because we're working so hard, but we may not have more to show for it. Yeah, I like how you mentioned, you know, there's so many kind of obstacles now that come along with everything that, you know, people forget that it it is an extra step. Even remembering a mask sometimes is (laughs) is another step to walking out the door. That's so true that there's just more to more to it right now. Do you have any suggestions? I know this is something new, but what can people do to maybe not feel this guilt right now about being as productive as they were six months ago? Sure. Yeah, I think we can look to some of the just coping literature in general to help us, you know, figure out how to deal with this. I think one thing to start with is to think about what are the consequences of that productivity guilt. So, ask yourselves, is it leading to any unhelpful coping, like skipping breaks or meals or skipping exercise, not going out and socializing, even, you know, in physically distant ways? Is it leading us to maybe give up some sleep or even some other ways of coping, like increased use of alcohol just to kind of calm ourselves down or make ourselves feel better in the moment? Or is this guilt leading us to any unproductive work behaviors like procrastination or even perfectionism? Sometimes if people are feeling guilty, they'll try and perfect whatever they're working on to even in unnecessary ways. So I think one thing to do is to start there and really ask ourselves, are we doing those things? And is is that unhelpful? Because really, we can be much more productive if we're taking good care of ourselves, if we are taking breaks stopping and eating lunch, getting out and interacting with people, even if it's through, you know, online ways or, uh, you know, a walk outside that's six feet apart. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me today and talking about productivity guilt. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Again, a note about tomorrow. We'll spend the hour talking with family members who have lost loved ones to the virus, joined by a grief counselor. To sort out a lot of emotions, Coronavirus Daily, A Time to Grieve, is this Friday's edition of the show. We end with this, though. Science fiction quickly becoming reality in the pandemic. Robots are taking over. 
Maybe this is how it starts. A restaurant in South Korea has come up with a way to cut down on human contact and ensure social distancing. It hired a robot as the newest server. It's a trolley-like guy. He delivers food, has an LCD screen and speakers. Talks two languages, Korean and English. The manager of Mad for Garlic restaurant found the robot unique, interesting, says customers. Well, they feel safe around him. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And we will be back tomorrow.